everybody welcome to the 58th episode of our news podcast this podcast along with all of our other news episodes are part of atlas news check out the lethal minds journal a veteran in active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journalist bulletin from the borderlands a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or you could also support us on ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate and let's head into the news All right, we're going to start it off with Europe and the South Caucasus, the state-organized Azerbaijani blockade of the de facto ethnic Armenian Republic of Artsakh is still ongoing. The Lachkin Corridor, which connects Artsakh and Armenia, runs through Azerbaijani-controlled territory and is supposed to be kept open by Russian peacekeepers in the area who have so far failed to enforce the ceasefire provisions that ended the Second Karabakh War in 2020. The blockade of the corridor has led to food and medicine shortages in Artsakh. The elderly and pregnant women are the most affected by this blockade. The blockade has gone on for almost nine months and shows no sign of ending. We do have a little bit of a regional update, though. Uh, Azerbaijan is moving forces and heavy equipment towards the border with Armenia and rounding up as many as 10,000 reservists. The official justification is an upcoming military exercise in the area, but observers and Armenian news entities believe that a new military operation against Armenia may be imminent. These concerns have been echoed by Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan as well. It's hard to tell exactly what is going to happen, but this is something to keep an eye on. This comes after a recent round of fighting between the two sides left multiple deaths. Some of the equipment that's being mobilized includes uh, Poli 21E electronic countermeasures systems. Those are used to interfere with drones and guided munitions. Drones were used heavily by Azerbaijan in the 2020 war with great effect. We've also seen troop transport trucks and attack and transport helicopters being deployed. And some of those actually have tactical markings as well. I believe we've seen at least three different sets of tactical markings, similar to what we saw with the Russian forces in the lead up to the invasion. You know, uh, the Z, the O, the V, those kind of things, same kind of concept. So it may be possible that we will see a a conflict uh, coming up here soon. Obviously, this situation between the two countries is is far from resolved, and uh, they will probably fight again at some point. The real question is just, when is that going to happen? And with all of this happening, it appears that Armenia is starting to move away from Russia at least a little bit. It's getting tired of the 2020 ceasefire not being enforced by Russian peacekeepers, as I was saying. And it's also getting tired of empty promises of mutual defense from the Collective Security Treaty Organization. That is the Russian-led CSTO. Think of it as Russia's answer to NATO, in a sense. Armenia's uh, foreign ministry responded harshly after Russia blamed the country for the humanitarian crisis in Artsakh, the blockade we've been talking about. Uh, the foreign ministry accused Russia of, quote, absolute indifference to Azerbaijani attacks on Armenian territory. It also added that Russia never responded to Armenia's request for assistance from the Russian-dominated CSTO in the face of the attacks, even though 
CSTO nations are treaty bound to defend each other against attacks similar to NATO's Article 5. The ministry also said that Russian peacekeepers acted outside of their bounds by allowing Azerbaijani troops to try and plant their flag on Armenian territory. I believe we talked about that in June. And then uh, also by allowing Azerbaijan to abduct citizens of Artsakh in the presence of Russian soldiers. We've talked about that in the past as well. Additionally, the wife of Prime Minister Pashinyan recently traveled to Kiev to participate in a summit with the Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska, which is significant because Armenia is seen as an ally to Russia. So the fact that Prime Minister's wife would travel to the nation that Russia is at war with, that's fairly significant. And then lastly, Armenia will actually hold uh, U.S. military troops for a training exercise this month. Roughly 85 soldiers from the 101st Airborne Division in the Kansas National Guard will train with about 175 Armenian soldiers. That move has angered Russia due to the U.S. Uh, providing aid to Ukraine. Russia has summoned Armenia's ambassador in response to the announcement. That's pretty much all we have at this time, but we'll keep you guys up to date. All right, looking at Russia, a viral video has appeared on social media that shows a firefight between Russian law enforcement and a group of illegal jade miners in Buratia, that is a Russian republic in the far east that borders Mongolia. That incident took place when a police unit conducted a raid against a group of about 40 illegal miners who Russian media outlets claim opened fire on the officers. However, the miners claim that they were fired upon first. However, five of them have been charged with attacking law enforcement. Jade mining is a big business in Buratia, both legal and illegal. Almost all of the jade that is mined but not processed in the region is exported to China. During the incident, two people were injured and 30 were arrested. The others got away. Looking at the war, Russian President Vladimir Putin has promoted Andrei uh, Mordvichev to the rank of Colonel General from Lieutenant General. Mordvichev is currently the commander of the Central Military District. He's also the commander of the Central Grouping of Forces in Ukraine. He took over these roles in February from Colonel General Alexander Lapin, who was relieved due to losses from Ukraine's counteroffensive in Kharkiv last year. Ukraine uh, actually claimed Mordvichev's death back in March of last year in a strike on the Kherson International Airport. Clearly, that was false. He previously served in the war in Donbass and in Syria as a battalion commander. His forces are mostly engaged in Zaporizhia Oblast defending against the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Moving on, Ukrainian Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov resigned from his post after President Volodymyr Zelensky said that he would be replaced last week. Reznikov was set to be fired over a recent corruption scandal involving the procurement of military jackets. Those 200,000 jackets were imported from Turkey for about $20 million, but were found to be not suitable for the winter, so pretty much useless. He's also taken flack for other scandals in the defense ministry since the invasion began. One scandal involved the ministry overpaying for food, two to three times their worth, and another scandal involved hundreds of millions of dollars paid to contractors to deliver weapons that were never actually delivered. Now, Reznikov was never actually implicated in corruption personally, but this is a big issue that was going on while he was head of the ministry, right? So buck stops with him. His replacement is Rustem Umerov, a Crimean Tartar member of parliament who has served as the head of the state property fund since September of last year. He is an 
economist by trade and has no military experience. He is, though, one of the few Ukrainian lawmakers with a direct line to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's tried to play sort of a mediating role in this conflict. So maybe that had something to do with it. Who knows? Moving on, according to the Russian Telegram channel SHOT, the Federal Security Service, otherwise known as the FSB, conducted a large raid against a network that sought to smuggle Russian aircraft parts to Ukraine and some Western countries. Dozens of suspected smugglers were reportedly arrested in the raid, and over 100 aircraft parts were confiscated. Among those parts were elements of aviation auxiliary power units, which feed an aircraft's instruments and allow its engines to start. The men that were arrested collectively had 117,000 U.S. dollars, 59,000 euros, and 5 million of an unstated currency on their persons when they were arrested. This comes after a Russian Army tactical aviation pilot defected to Ukraine with his Mi-8 helicopter in a months-long operation by Ukraine's main directorate of intelligence, the GUR. That pilot's other two crewmates did not survive. They were either killed by the pilot or by GUR operatives during that defection operation. And then last week, Jericho McGollin, who went by the nickname Shepard, was killed in combat against Russian forces in the vicinity of Bakhmut. According to his family, McGollin was a 26-year-old U.S. Army military police veteran of Ojai, California, in Ventura County. According to his aunt, he was on his second tour with the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. He actually returned home from his first back in December, but he recently came back to Ukraine to help train a unit. And he volunteered to accompany that unit on an operation when he was sadly killed. He leaves behind a six-year-old son. On the 4th, Ukrainian forces lost their first British-donated Challenger II main battle tank in combat outside of Robotny in Zaporizhia Oblast. This tank likely belonged to the 82nd Air Assault Brigade, as it is the currently only known brigade to have Challengers at this time. This is only the second Challenger II that has ever been lost in combat. The first was destroyed in Iraq in 2003 in a British-friendly fire incident involving another Challenger. Next up, on the 5th, Chief Customs Officer of the Luhansk People's Republic, Yuri Afanasyevsky, was injured when a bomb exploded in his apartment. Ukrainian outlet Romadsky says that this was an assassination attempt by the Ukrainian SBU, according to unnamed sources. Afanasyevsky was hospitalized in serious condition with multiple shrapnel wounds. Russian state news agency TASS claims that a woman was detained in connection to the attack by the LPR's branch of Russia's investigative committee. Afanasyevsky is among a number of Russian and pro-Russian officials that have been killed or wounded since the invasion began. If you've listened to the show for a while, then you would know that the LPR is a Ukrainian separatist entity in the Donbass region. Russia officially annexed Luhansk and three other Ukrainian regions last fall. Moving on, on the morning of the 6th, Russian forces downed Ukrainian drones over Rostov-on-Don, Bryansk Oblast, and the capital city of Moscow, according to multiple state news agencies. One of the drones was shot down near the headquarters of the Southern Military District in Rostov and was likely targeting that building. And yes, that is the same building that the Wagner Group briefly took over in late June. That drone injured one person. And then lastly, for the war on the 7th, a car bombing in the occupied town of 
Oleski in Kherson Oblast killed one member of Russia's FSB and two Russian military officers. Ukrainian state media says that the SBO was responsible for that bombing. Looking at the Indo-Pacific region, North Korea, the country just launched a new tactical nuclear attack submarine named the Hero Kim Gonok, hole number 841. The sub is a former Soviet Romeo class that has been heavily modified. It has 10 visible ballistic missile launch tubes, but it may be missing torpedo tubes due to the extensive modifications. According to our man Sinotok, the Modified sub is a big leap forward in North Korea's submarine-launched ballistic missile program. It is significant that the sub can, in theory, carry up to 10 missiles, uh, but it may carry a mixture of cruise and ballistic missiles, actually. And then looking at China, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro is on a six-day trip to China. He arrived in Shenzhen on Friday. Maduro is trying to get more Chinese investment in Venezuela ahead of the presidential election next year. This is his first visit to the country in five years. Moving on to the Middle East, taking a look at Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is calling for the immediate deportation of Eritrean migrants that were involved in riots in the capital of Tel Aviv last weekend. Violent clashes took place between supporters and opponents of the current Eritrean regime and later included police once they got involved. In total, over 100 people were injured in these riots. Thousands of Eritreans are currently in Israel, fleeing conditions in their home country that has been under the rule of President Asayas Afwerki for more than 30 years. Roughly 25,000 Africans live in Israel total, most of whom come from Eritrea and Sudan. However, the government sees most of them as economic migrants and not asylum seekers, meaning that most of them are not citizens either. Unrest broke out when opponents of President Arforiki marched on the embassy in Tel Aviv, which was marking the 30 years of Eritrean independence from Ethiopia. Rioters broke through police barriers, smashed windows, vandalized stores, and threw rocks at each other. The crowds were chased away with tear gas, flashbangs, and live fire warning shots. Prime Minister Netanyahu wants his government to draw plans to immediately deport those involved in the riot and eventually deport all African non-citizens from Israel, which includes, like I was saying, most Africans in the country. Israel has tried to do this before, but the Supreme Court has blocked those attempts in the past, so it isn't clear if Netanyahu will actually be able to do it this time. Looking at Afghanistan... Amaruddin Andarabi, who is a senior commander with the Afghan National Resistance Front, was allegedly killed recently, according to local sources that spoke to Amaj News. The sources claim that Andarabi was killed at his base in Andarab District, Bagalan Province, by a Taliban infiltrator. Andarabi was the brother of Commander Tyre Mohammed Arkai. Andarabi, another NRF senior leader who was killed a few months ago in a battle with the Taliban in Andarab district as well. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back with Africa. Okay, we're back with Africa, taking a look at Morocco on Saturday morning. A 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck Morocco's high Atlas Mountains, 
This was the strongest earthquake to be registered in the country and was felt across the entire country and actually as far away as Spain and Portugal as of Saturday afternoon, the death toll stands at 2,012 people and over 2,000 remain injured. Multiple buildings have collapsed, including in the historic city of Marrakech. And really, that's all we know at this moment. We'll keep you guys up to date if anything else happens. We have a update on the uh, Gabon coup on the 4th Brigadier General Bryce Alugoy Nguema was sworn in as the transitional president of Gabon after the coup that deposed President Omar Ali Bongo. Nguema was the commander in chief of the presidential guard that deposed Bongo. And something I actually forgot to note in the last episode, he's Bongo's cousin. So he overthrew his cousin and he's now the president. Looking at Niger, the situation regarding the recent military coup is still tense. ECOWAS maintains that it will militarily intervene in Niger if the military junta does not restore President Mohamed Bazoum to power. Negotiations between the two sides to end the dispute peacefully continue, but have made little progress. There are no major updates at this time, and it's really starting to not look like any military action is going to be taken by ECOWAS. It's pretty much all talk at this point, in my personal opinion. Looking at Sudan, fighting between the Sudanese Armed Forces, SAF, and the Rapid Support Forces, RSF, continues. The war has so far forced 5.2 million people from their homes. 1.1 million of those have fled to other countries. Additionally, between 4,000 and 10,000 people have been killed. On the 1st, Abdelazim Suleiman Juma, who is the leader of the rebel group Sudan's People's Liberation Movement, a North Democratic Revolutionary Movement, yep, that's the whole name, was killed when an artillery shell fell on his house in Yala. This is the third leader from the group that has been killed since the war started. The DRM's deputy chairman for West Darfur, Abubakar Youssef, and Mustafa Muhammad Ali, a member from the leadership office in West Darfur, have been killed as well. On the second, an SAF airstrike killed at least 20 people, including some children in the Kalaka Al-Kuba neighborhood of Khartoum. On the fifth, Egypt resumed commercial flights with Sudan for the first time since the war started in mid-April, with Egypt Air flying flights from Cairo to Port Sudan. And on the sixth, the U.S. imposed sanctions on two RSF officers. That is Abdel Rahman Degallo, the deputy commander of the RSF, and also the brother of its leader, General Hamdan Degallo, and Abdul Rahman Juma, the group's top commander in West Darfur. The U.S. accuses both men of extensive human rights abuses. Juma, in particular, was accused of being behind the assassination of West Darfur's governor, Kamis Abakar, in June. Moving on to the Americas, uh, bulletin from the borderlands released on the 1st. The desk covered the Central American Parliament expelling Taiwan, a Texas National Guard soldier shooting a man across the border with Mexico, and an ISIS-linked smuggling network that was taken down by the FBI recently. Moving on to Bolivia, the country's government has shifted its tone, now acknowledging that it is become a major cocaine production center, not just a trafficking point and producer of coca leaves. This comes as disputes are intensifying within the Movement for Socialism, MAS, which is the governing party. For years, the government only claimed that Bolivia had limited amounts of cocaine production, but now says that it has found and destroyed more than 27 megalabs this year. 
Additionally, there have been 1,804 drug lab busts since 2020. Most of those labs were in the Chapari region, which is a major coca leaf growing area and a bastion of support for former President Abel Morales. The dispute in the MAS comes from the two sides in the primary for the 2025 presidential election incumbent President Luis Arce or former President Morales. Both sides point the blame at each other and accuse each other of protecting cocaine traffickers. Looking at Venezuela, the country's oil exports in August fell 38% from their level in July as state-owned PDVSA struggled to keep its heavy crude upgraders in service. Although overall the country has slightly increased its oil production and exports in 2023, July saw a three-year high in terms of exports for Venezuela. This was helped by fewer outages and output from Chevron, which recently gained a U.S. license to resume operations in Venezuela back in November. Exports in August were about 544,000 barrels per day, as opposed to 877,000 barrels per day in July. Along with issues with upgraders, U.S. sanctions, and an overall lack of capital for PDVSA are contributing issues to low production and exports. Most crude and fuel exports from Venezuela go to China. Looking at Cuba, Cuba has uncovered a trafficking ring that recruits Cubans to fight for Russia in Ukraine. This network is recruiting both Cubans that live in Russia and people living on the Caribbean island. Cuba's foreign ministry condemned this network, saying that, quote, Cuba is not a part of the war in Ukraine. It is acting and will act vigorously against whoever from the national territory participates in any form of human trafficking to recruit mercenaries so that Cuban citizens use weapons against any country, end quote. Videos emerged on social media this month of soldiers claiming to be Cuban, saying that they were serving in the Russian armed forces and that they had been tricked into deploying to Ukraine. They also said that they were mistreated when they refused to fight. In one of the videos, two Cuban men claimed that they were told by recruiters that they would be fixing up houses that have been damaged by the fighting. They say that they had no idea they would be undergoing military training or be going to the front lines. They also claim that they haven't even been paid yet. It is not clear how many Cubans have been recruited by this network. Ukrainian hackers claim that they have found information on 122 Cubans, including their passports and photos. Authorities just announced the arrest of 17 people connected to this ring. According to prosecutor Jose Luis Reyes, the defenders could face a minimum of 30 years to life in prison or possibly the death penalty, depending on the severity of their crimes. They face human trafficking charges and are also being charged with fighting as mercenaries and committing a hostile act against a foreign state. Russia has been offering $2,000 a month and citizenship to foreigners that join the war effort. It isn't clear if any Cubans have received those benefits, but $2,000 a month is basically a fortune in Cuba. Doctors don't even make that much. Cuba has been a defender of the Russian invasion, has been a staunch Russian ally since the Cold War. It will be interesting to see if their relationship changes because of this. Moving on to the United States, of course, we got a presidential race update. These are polls from 538. These are all averages. Biden's approval is at 40%. That is down 1% from last week. And his disapproval is at 56. That is up one point. Trump's favorability is at 40%. That remains the same. His unfavorability is at 56. That is down one. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 66%. That is up two points. 
RFK Jr. is at 12%. That is down one. And the Republican primary, Trump is at 53%. That is up three points from last week. DeSantis is at 13. That is down two. And Vivek Ramaswamy is at eight. That is down 1%. Moving on, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, Democrat from California, announced that she will seek re-election next year. The former House Speaker is 83 years old. Moving on, there was an incident on the 5th at the Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center 29 Palms in California. Multiple Marines from 3rd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment suffered traumatic brain injuries when a 155-millimeter artillery shell landed very close to their vehicle. The shell destroyed the front portion of their tactical vehicle and reportedly came from a cannon from 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines, and fell short of its intended target by two miles. The incident is under investigation. It's a miracle that the Marines walked away from this in one piece. Moving on, also on the 5th, President Joe Biden awarded the Medal of Honor to U.S. Army Captain Larry L. Taylor of the 1st Squadron, 4th Cavalry Regiment for his actions in Vietnam. On June 18, 1968, then First Lieutenant Taylor was the pilot of a AH-1-G Cobra attack helicopter when he heard a whisper coming from his radio saying, we're surrounded, we're surrounded. A four-man recon team was surrounded by nearly 100 communist fighters. Lieutenant Larry was already low on fuel and ammunition. It was also completely dark when the call came. He had the team launch a flare in the sky, which revealed their position to the Cobra, but also the enemy on the ground. Larry and his wingman flew dangerously low and fired on communist forces. After 45 minutes of attack runs, burning through all of his ammunition and already having had his Cobra hit multiple times by the enemy, Larry used his landing lights to distract the enemy while the recon team headed to their extraction point. Even though the Cobra is a two-seater and not meant to carry troops, Larry landed his helicopter at the extraction point and the four men climbed on the skids and the rocket pods and were flown to safety. President Biden said of Larry's actions, quote, that's our nation at its very best, end quote. Larry's rescue was the first of that sort that had been attempted in Vietnam. He was originally awarded a silver star for his actions. During his time in Vietnam, Larry flew 2,000 combat missions in a Cobra and in a UH-1 Huey and was engaged by enemy fire 340 times. And of those 340, he was forced down by enemy fire five times. All right, moving on. On the 8th, the U.S. Navy's littoral combat ship USS Milwaukee LCS-5 was decommissioned at Mayport, Florida after being commissioned in November 2015. The ship never deployed beyond Central America and the Caribbean. Moving on, Elon Musk says that Twitter is going to sue the Anti-Defamation League for defamation. He claims that they pressure advertisers to not engage with the service. He also says that they could be on the line for $22 billion in lost revenue. We'll keep you guys up to date if anything becomes of that. And then last story we got, federal prosecutors have announced their intention to indict President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, on tax charges and firearms charges by September 29th. This is in relation to the investigation by U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, who was recently given special counsel status five years after his investigation began. As we have reported on, the plea deal between Biden and the DOJ was thrown out by U.S. District Judge Mary Ellen Noriega in July due to questions of its legality and the extent of immunity granted to Hunter Biden. And that's all I have for you guys. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. And we are also on Telegram at Analyze and Educate. Please consider supporting us on Patreon again at patreon.com slash analyze educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze and educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you use to listen to this podcast, and we will see you guys soon.